As you may know, the primary question of the Protestant Reformation was, how can I be saved from God's wrath? Therefore, the doctrine of sole fide, that is, justification by faith alone, not by works, was at the heart of the Reformation. And yet, church historians have long said another sola was the real cause of the Reformation, sola scriptura. That was the ultimate cause because the underlying formal issue of the Reformation was that of authority. And so Martin Luther and Roman Catholic theologians clashed over who the supreme authority was in the church. Romanists, of course, argued that papal decrees, traditions, the teachings of church councils and the fathers, they were the ultimate authority. Whereas Luther argued that councils and popes can err, and yet the Bible never does. So Luther argued for sola scriptura, which is to say the Bible is the sufficient, final, and supreme authority over the church and all matters of truth regarding salvation and spiritual life. Well, the titanic clash between Luther and Rome came to a head at the Diet of Worms, a 1521 imperial assembly that occurred in the city of Worms. There, Luther was declared to be a heretic, of course, by Rome because he refused to recant his beliefs that were grounded in Scripture, his ultimate authority. He famously said, Unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I will not recant because my conscience is held captive by the word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Our text for today in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, are foundational verses for the doctrine of Sola Scriptura. As you find your way there, let me just remind you of the immediate as well as the overall context in which this passage is nestled. When the Apostle Peter wrote 2 Peter, you'll remember he did so soon before his death. That's why he wrote this epistle. He wanted to leave a reminder to those early Christians about his teachings on the gospel, on the Christian life, so that those early believers would continue to grow in godliness as well as to avoid false teaching. Peter was concerned that those early believers would be led astray by false teachers who were already plaguing the early churches. Denial of Christ's return, you'll remember, really gets at the heart of their heresy. You remember these false teachers argued that the apostles actually invented the doctrine of Christ's second coming. False teachers also rejected the prophetic passages which taught Christ's return, and they mocked that the Lord had not returned yet, and they taught that there would not only be no return of Christ, but no coming judgment. And the reason that they denied Christ's return and coming judgment is for the same reason that unbelievers do the same today. They wanted to continue to live in their lifestyle of sin. 
As 2 Peter later indicates, their lives were marked by immorality, by defiance of authority, intellectual arrogance, vanity, greed. The point is, these false teachers denied Christ coming again and coming judgment because if there is no judgment, then there is no accountability for how one lives life now. But as you'll recall, the false teachers weren't content only to believe the heresies they believed. No, they wanted to lead professing believers astray as well. They wanted professing Christians to deny Christ's second coming and coming judgment so that they, too, would have no incentive, no motivation for living holy lives either. Let's understand, ungodly people don't want anybody living a godly life because when others are living a godly life, it reminds them that they should be doing the same in light of coming judgment. And they don't want that reminder. They hate that kind of reminder because it brings conviction to them. The reason... Peter particularly focused on the doctrine of Christ's second advent is because, you'll remember, this was the entry point through which these false teachers were attacking all of Christian truth. They they sought to undermine all Christian truth by decimating this particular doctrine, the coming of Christ. So Peter wanted his Christian readers to understand that he and the other apostles did not make up the doctrine of Christ's second coming. Remember from last time, he tells them, listen, this was not a myth that we somehow manufactured out of thin air just to control other people. This is what the false teachers were falsely claiming about the apostles. That wasn't the case. You remember what Peter argued? He said, no, me and the other apostles, actually I witnessed Christ." We witnessed his words and his works. We heard his teaching like his teaching on his return. And we, we eyewitnessed his miraculous deeds, which validated his teaching like the transfiguration. As we considered last Lord's Day, Peter specifically singled out the, the powerful and glorious transformation of Christ because Christ's transformation, transfiguration rather, prophetically foreshadows his future coming in power and glory. You remember the transfiguration unveiled the glory that will belong to Christ at his return. So as we saw last week in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 1, Peter essentially argues, I know for sure and you believers can know for sure that Christ will return. And why is it that we can be so sure about this? Because I, along with James and John, saw Christ's transfiguration, an event that specifically points ahead to Christ's return. In other words, that past historical event anticipates, it represents, it pledges, indeed guarantees a future historical event, that of Christ's return. Apostolic testimony of the transfiguration, then, is the first reason why Christians can be certain for Christ's return. Our text for today, verses 19 through 21, gives us the second reason. We can be sure that Christ is going to come again because of the reliability 
of the prophetic word, as Peter calls it. That is, the inspired word of God. It confirms and is confirmed by the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. So as mentioned last week, the overriding point of verses 16 through verse 21, this final paragraph of of chapter 1, is this. The certain reality of Christ's second coming is founded upon the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and God's inspired word. Together, these two revelations, eyewitness revelation and written revelation, declare the objective certainty of the Christian message in general, and together these two revelations from God specifically point to Christ's return and coming judgment. And we could say together these two sources also counter the accusations that those false teachers were making. Today, we're going to focus on God's inspired word. As mentioned last time, since we now have the apostolic witness in the New Testament, the two elements really are one, God's written word. Verses 19 through 21, Peter emphasizes the witness of Scripture because he wanted his Christian readers to see really what their choice for authority boiled down to. It was either accepting God's word or accepting man's word, like that of the false teachers, which, of course, was in disagreement with God's word. Let's hear what Peter had to say about that word, beginning in verse 19, chapter 1. The apostle writes, And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, And the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. At its core, this portion of Scripture is asserting this primary truth. Because God's word is sure, shining, and spirit-given, we must trust, obey, and accurately interpret it until Christ returns. As that proposition reflects, there are three things we should do in response to God's word, which is characterized in three ways in our text. First of all, God's word is the sure word that we must trust So as believers, Peter's telling us, we not only have the apostolic witness to the transfiguration of Christ, but we also, verse 19, have something more sure, the prophetic word. That is, the the prophetic word is more sure, is more certain. We here in verse 19 obviously refers to the apostles as we saw back in verses 16 through 18, But by extension, we here also now refers to the church because Peter immediately goes on to address the church. He says, you, meaning the church, will do well to pay attention, etc. The prophetic word spoken of here is pointing specifically to those 
Old Testament prophetic passages related to the day of the Lord. That is, the day of final salvation and judgment. And by extension, we could say the prophetic word also applies to all of the Old Testament and even the New Testament because, of course, all of Scripture is woven together. Scripture is Scripture, so what is true of the Old Testament is also new of the New Testament. This is certainly true. Nevertheless, Peter is primarily talking about Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming day of the Lord. That is, prophecies about the kingdom to be established by the Messiah at the end of history. And these prophecies, Peter is telling us, these prophecies in particular were confirmed and clarified by Christ's transfiguration, a prophetic preview of Christ in his glory, which is what Peter is talking about when he says the prophetic word is more sure. Perhaps you have heard someone interpret that phrase, as many do, to mean God's written word is more sure than the disciples' experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. The idea is Scripture ranks above even Peter's own experience, that God's word is more reliable in teaching on Christ than what the apostles experienced and witnessed firsthand. Well, this particular interpretation certainly has some very attractive features to it. Certainly, we should put personal experience, we should never, rather, put personal experience above Scripture because experiences are not always reliable, whereas Scripture, indeed, always is reliable. You know, you often hear people say something today like this, I know that is true because I experienced it. But the problem with saying that is experiences are often misguided. The fact of the matter is, is our sinful flesh can distort experiences. And of course, Satan can manipulate experiences, can manipulate our feelings. So the objective constant of Scripture must always be our final authority. If our experiences... And Scripture contradict one another, then we must always trust in Scripture, not experience. And this is certainly true. But is that what Peter is primarily saying here? Well, I would argue, both from the Greek as well as context, that that is not what's primarily being suggested here. Because if that is what Peter was saying, then he would be sabotaging his own argument from verses 16 through 18. Peter is not saying that we need, needed something better than Christ's transfiguration, something like Old Testament scriptures, to make his point. No, in verses 16 through 18, we see that Peter clearly believed the transfiguration was a convincing, authoritative proof for his particular view on Christ's coming. But we don't see in verses 16 through 18 Peter questioning the reliability of his eyewitness testimony. We don't see that at all. He, he knew what he saw. He knew what he heard. His experience was real. His experience was true. 
So I would suggest rather than us pitting Scripture against the apostolic eyewitness testimony, we really need to see how they come together in that phrase, more sure. Peter certainly believed that Old Testament prophecies gave us a sure word concerning Christ. They precisely predicted his sufferings and the glory that would follow. But we also have to understand that the apostles were foggy on how everything really came together, how it all fit together until Christ's death and resurrection. It wasn't until that time when Jesus explained to him how everything came together, how he explained to them that it was necessary for him to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. It wasn't until then, after his death and resurrection, that Peter, James, and John could look back and recall their experience on the Mount of Transfiguration and then could understand that seeing Christ in his glory was actually a a prophetic glimpse of Christ's second coming. So in this sense, the Old Testament prophetic word was made more sure or more certain. Christ's transfiguration confirmed and clarified for the apostles the truth that was already in the Old Testament. See, they they did not completely understand Old Testament truth concerning Christ's return until they witnessed Christ's transfiguration, until after Jesus' resurrection. Thus, the transfiguration gave to the Old Testament prophetic word an even greater certainty in Messiah's return, in Messiah's reign, than it had before. Christ's transformation, God the Father's voice from heaven, on that mount of transfiguration made the word of the prophets more certain. Well, how is that? It's because the transfiguration pictured the fulfillment of the prophet's words. The the prophets pointed ahead, and the transfiguration further pointed ahead to Jesus' kingdom on earth. And so the transfiguration should make Christians even more confident in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ's return. The Old Testament scriptures were completely reliable on this score as the transfiguration confirmed. So let's be very clear on this. It's important for us to understand. Peter was not suggesting that the Old Testament prophetic word is more reliable than the transfiguration, nor was Peter suggesting that the transfiguration is more reliable than the prophetic word. They're both reliable. One is not more or less reliable than the other, Instead, we need to understand the transfiguration provides a confirming interpretation of the prophetic word. Peter is then saying we can confidently say the Old Testament prophetic word refers to Christ's second coming, which the transfiguration further confirms. Or we can say it this way, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Theologian D. Edmund Hebert asserts 
The rendering made more sure indicates that what was seen and heard at the transfiguration increases our perception of the reliability of the prophetic word. Thus, Andrew Fawcett remarks, Previously, we knew its sureness by faith, but through the visible specimen of its hereafter entire fulfillment, assurance is made doubly sure. The transfiguration gives us a pledge to make our faith still stronger, that the day of his glory will dawn ere long. So what we're saying here is progressive fulfillment of scriptural Prophecy should make us more confident, more and more confident in Christ's return. Think about the the many, some 300 plus Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ's first coming. All those fulfilled prophecies should make us confident that all the Old Testament prophecies about his second coming will also be fulfilled. And Christ's transfiguration which, as we learned last week, anticipates the second coming, should make us further confident in its fulfillment. So the bottom line is this. God's word is sure. It is reliable. and Therefore, we must trust in it. Next, we learn that God's word is the shining word that we must obey in light of Christ's return. So being confident in the reliability of the prophetic word should lead us then to to live lives in accordance to its teaching. Consequently, Peter goes on to urge us to pay close attention to God's word. Why? So that we will obey it until Christ comes again. Look at verse 19 again. Peter continues. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Well, the latter half of that verse gives us not only the main point of this particular passage, but really it is the central point to everything that Peter has said up to this point in Second Peter. So it's very important. Let's make sure we're not... We don't miss what he is saying here. Basically, the flow of thought is this. Since the Old Testament prophets predicted Christ's second coming, and since our experience in the Mount Transfiguration gives the proper interpretation and gives confirmation of those prophecies, believers heed and obey the scriptures. For it is like a lamp illuminating the darkness. And it will give us the direction we need until God's Son returns in judgment. And once he returns, the prophetic word will then be fulfilled. For then Christ will illumine our hearts with his light. Then the prophetic word will forever be eclipsed by the living word, Jesus. As I mentioned a moment ago, everything that Peter has written up to this point, leads to this exhortation. Pay careful attention. By this, Peter means heed. That is, act on God's word by embracing and following it. And if you do, you will do well, Peter says. Which is to say, you will do well in what is right and correct. 
Let's understand, obeying Scripture is not only a good thing to do, but also the right thing to do. We shouldn't just obey the Bible simply because it benefits us in some way. We should obey because it is right to obey. And yet at the same time, we have to acknowledge that obedience to God's word does benefit us. As Peter says in this simile, God's word is like an oil-burning lamp. A lamp that lights up a dark place so that we can spiritually see where we are going. Of course, these words by Peter echo Psalm 119, which says that the word of God is like a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Verse 19, the Greek word for dark there is interesting because it it not only connotes that something is, is dark, but that it is also dirty, that it is foul that it is filthy, that it lacks cleanliness. The place to which Peter is referring here is this present evil world, which certainly is spiritually dark, is spiritually dirty because of sin, because of false teaching. False teaching like the false teachers in Peter's day were um, teaching others. Heresies like... Christ is never going to come again, or that he already has come again, or heresies, that there isn't going to be any coming judgment, therefore there are no consequences to the sins that you commit now. And if we embrace any of those heresies, it will dim our spiritual sight. If we believe these heresies, we will grope around in darkness and filth without spiritual awareness and spiritual direction. And sadly, of course, that is the constant condition of those who are outside of Christ, those who are lost, those who are spiritually blind. But thankfully, as Peter points out here, as Christians, we have the lamp of God's word, a lamp that illumines us with the truth about Christ's return, a lamp which navigates us through this dark and dirty fallen world. A word that enlightens the path that we are to follow. Have you ever been in a pitch black environment before? So dark you couldn't see anything around you? I was last year during a one night camping trip. And from that experience I learned a couple things. One thing I learned is that I'm not a good camper. Not at all. Uh, I don't sleep very well in a sleeping bag knowing that I am a human burrito ready for some bear to devour. That's one thing I learned. I also learned how absolutely important it is to have a very strong flashlight in that kind of environment. At one point during the trip, we made a, about a 10-minute walk in the woods in the dark to get some more supplies. And we needed a flashlight to see along the way, that dark pathway. Again, this this forest was so dark, you could not see your hand in front of your face. So the flashlight was absolutely indispensable. It helped us to see where there were rocks that we could trip over, holes where we could twist our ankles, tree branches that could hit us on on the head. 
and, of course, see any animals that could possibly attack us, like squirrels, which were the only animals that we saw that night. Well, like that flashlight, God's word shows us the way through the dark forest of this world. It reveals the narrow path that we must follow. It exposes the stumbling stones and the holes and pitfalls and sinful creatures along the path that we are to avoid. This world is is morally dark, dirty. It's a dangerous place. There are many sinful hazards over which we can stumble and fall. And there are many false teachers lurking in the darkness, ready to spiritually pounce on us and try to devour us. Which is why, believer, you need God's word to be your light. So it can help you to avoid falling into sin. So it can guide you and how you ought to live a life pleasing unto the Lord throughout the entirety of your life or until Christ returns. And that is how long we need scriptures to be our guide. That's how long we need to give heed to scripture and particularly prophetic scriptures because they point us to Christ's second advent. As Peter goes on to say, we as believers need scripture until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. The day dawns here, of course, is referring to the second coming of Christ. It is that end time event commonly referred to in scripture as the day of the Lord. And of course, this day will be a glorious, joyful day for believers because the Lord will bring about all of his purposes and he will complete our redemption. But it will not be a day of gladness for unbelievers. It will be a day of great regret, a day of great terror, for the Lord will defeat, he will judge and punish all the ungodly, all unbelievers. And he will, of course, also put to an end this present world order. Peter also describes the day of the Lord as a time when the morning star rises in your hearts. In Greek literature, morning star was used to refer to royal and divine people. But here, of course, it is specifically referring to Christ and his second coming when he will bring his light. And that is what morning star literally means. It means light bringer. In the Old Testament, Christ was symbolized by a star. Numbers 24, 17, ultimately pointing to Christ, says, A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Malachi 4, 2 speaks of Christ as the rising sun of righteousness. And in Revelation 22, Jesus refers to himself as the bright morning star. So Morningstar is speaking about Christ and the event of his return. But what exactly does Peter mean when he says the morning star rises in your hearts? And when you think about that on the surface, it, it almost makes it sound like Christ's return is not going to be some kind of objective, outward 
visible event. It almost, so, almost sounds like Christ's return is going to be some kind of inward, invisible, subjective event that happens in the hearts of believers. But of course, we know that can't be what Peter is saying here because he clearly believed in the objective, bodily, personal return of Jesus. So, so what is Peter saying here? Well, basically, he means right now God's word illuminates our pathway through this dark world. But when Jesus, the morning star, returns, we will have the light of his presence. Therefore, we will no longer need the prophetic word to shine for us in the dark place of this sinful world. Why is that the case? Because the one of whom the prophecy spoke, Jesus, will finally be with us personally. And he, the morning star, will fully shine into our hearts then. Our inner transformation at that point will be complete at Christ's return The light that he first shined upon us at conversion will reach its full consummation. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. And therefore, we will no longer need the prophetic word. Why is that? Well, think about it this way. You don't need lamps when it's daylight. Theologian Peter Davids explains it this way. He writes, One treasures a love letter while the beloved is absent. But once he or she is present, the letter is laid aside in exchange for the personal contact. God's prophetic word is like a love letter that we should treasure now and use as a guide through this wicked world. But when Christ... The one we love appears, we're no longer going to need the love letter. He will fulfill the written word. and He will write it forever on our hearts. We'll no longer need the prophecies which point to Christ because we'll have the person of Christ present with us. Our lives will be fully illuminated by the glorious radiance of his presence. But until that day, we need the light of God's word to illuminate our hearts with his truth. We need his word to light our path as we walk in this dangerous world on our pilgrim journey. And I just want to ask you this morning, is this what is happening in your life? Are you paying attention to God's word, the prophetic word, that lamp that shines into the darkness? Are you pondering and obeying God's word? Are you allowing it to warn you and correct you and guide you and encourage you so that you will walk safely through this dangerous world? Do you read the word of God regularly to to gain the light that you need to live a godly life? Are you meditating on it? Are you obeying God's word? In the light of Christ's return, when you will have to give an account to him. Well, if you are not, if you are not paying attention, but rather neglecting the word of God, know this, you're going to be engulfed by sinful darkness. Verses 20 and 21, we are told why we should pay close attention to Scripture. Why should we pay close attention to it? 
Why should we pay such close attention to the prophetic word as Peter says? Because it is inspired of God. Because this is not the word of a mere man. This is the word of God from God. It is not from man or from his private personal interpretation. Which brings us to the final characteristic of God's word in our response to it. God's word is the spirit-given word that we must interpret accurately because it is from God, not man. The phrase there, knowing this first of all, means that what Peter was about to say is of first importance. It is top priority. And what is the primary thing that we are to know? What is that thing that we must keep in mind when we are studying God's word? It is this. Nobody is free to interpret, explain God's word however he or she wants. There are two ways of, two main ways, I should say, of understanding verse 20. One view is related to the origin of Scripture. This view basically says that no prophecy of Scripture came about by a prophet's own private interpretation. Instead, God gave the revelation and the interpretation of that revelation to the prophet. The problem with this view is that verse 20 does not say that it is a prophet's interpretation. When you look at it, what does it say? It says someone's own interpretation. So really it could be referring to anyone, not just to a biblical prophet. What does the word interpretation mean? It means to untie something, to untie a knot, to solve a problem, to explain something. Now you'll You'll read many people out there that say, well, that's not, really not what the Greek means. It really doesn't mean to interpret or explain, but that is what the Greek means. It means to interpret. So it most likely refers to the proper interpretation of a prophecy after it has already been given. So Peter isn't talking about the origination of the prophecy, the origination of God's word, but its interpretation by others after it has already been given. Which brings us to the second main way to understand verse 20, which I believe is the correct understanding because of the context in particular. Peter is really saying here, nobody is allowed to interpret Scripture according to their own personal feelings, their own personal whims. Likely, the reason why Peter says this, remember the context, is because of the false teachers. What were they doing? They were incorrectly interpreting the word of God. They were distorting scripture to say what they wanted it to say, not what it actually says. Seems why, this, this is why Peter is saying this. Because you'll, you'll notice, just two verses after verse 20, you get into chapter 2, and this is where Peter really starts to address the false teachers in his day, those who were incorrectly interpreting the scriptures. They, they interpreted biblical prophecy in a wrong way to support their own wrong views. And in so doing, they rejected the proper interpretation that was given by the apostles. These false teachers interpreted scripture in a way that 
denied Christ's return. And this is quite clear when Peter later says, chapter 3, verse 16, that they twist the scriptures. But in our text, Peter says nobody has the freedom to do that. Peter wants his Christian readers to understand you must pay attention to the prophetic word as it is interpreted properly by the apostles. Why? Because the Old Testament prophecies are not a matter of personal private interpretation. They have already been authoritatively interpreted by the apostles. We would say today, once scripture has been interpreted, we don't have a right to go put our own spin on it. God's word should never be interpreted subjectively according to one's own feelings, opinions, preferences. Instead, scripture must be interpreted according to its real singular meaning. This is of first importance, Peter says. Why? Because Christ is coming back to judge, and the objective standard by which he is going to judge all is his word. Therefore, we had better understand it correctly. Let's understand this. Interpreting Scripture carries with it a very heavy responsibility. And that responsibility is to interpret it correctly. So let me just caution us, brethren. If you are in the habit of reading God's word, and the very first question you find yourself asking when you read God's word is, what does this mean to me? I want to suggest that you are asking the wrong question, and really a dangerous one. Because that kind of question assumes that truth is relative, that it just depends on the person. We make our own truth. And if that's how you approach the scriptures, you're going to invite a very dangerous, subjective, feeling-driven interpretation of scripture. And when you do that, you're likely going to twist the scriptures to make it say what you want it to say rather than what it really says. The first question you need to ask when reading scripture is, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does it really mean? To determine the correct singular meaning, you have to interpret a text in light of its context. You also need to look carefully at things and consider things like the grammar, the particular kind or genre of literature. You're looking at historical background to a passage. Brethren, we have to understand that words mean something, and when we put them together, they are intended to convey objective propositional truth. Also, you need to let Scripture interpret Scripture as much as you can. Why? Because Scripture never contradicts itself. The point is, to interpret Scripture correctly, you must first determine what the author's original intent was. And then make appropriate applications to yourself from that. So once you have answered the question, what does this mean? Then you can ask and answer the question, How does this apply to me? We must remember this because Peter is clear here. We are are not free to just arbitrarily 
make the scriptures say whatever we want them to say. And the reason we're not allowed to do that is because it's not our word. It is God's word. It is from him. And so we had better understand it correctly and we had better obey it completely. The Bible is from God, given to us through his servants. As verse 21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God's word came to us through human authors, but let's be clear on this, they, they never, never made it up themselves. This is not their word. Instead, we are told here that they were moved or they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that passive verb is used in Acts 27 to refer to the, the wind that carried along Paul in that ship that was in a storm at sea. So what Peter is saying here is is in this sense. It was as if the biblical writers raised up their spiritual cells and the Holy Spirit filled those cells and carried them along in the direction he desired for them. That is to say, to pen the words he wanted them to write. Biblical writers were not giving their own views. They spoke as God's mouthpieces. They they accurately declared his words. Now that word spoke there obviously refers to the original oral proclamations that the prophets made and then of course later the apostles made. But also understand spoke here also refers to putting those oral proclamations down in writing. You'll note in verse 20 The prophecy is referred to as what? Prophecy of Scripture. So it's talking about inscripturated prophecy, that which is written down. So in both cases, both both oral and written, the voice of God spoke through his servants. Of course, this does not mean that God somehow just sort of erased their personalities their gifts, their experiences. We shouldn't understand the inspiration of Scripture as if the biblical writers were just some kind of robots that just mindlessly dictated to them whatever the the Holy Spirit wanted them to write. That's not how it went down. No, the Holy Spirit used their personalities. He used their experiences as they wrote. And yet we've got to be crystal clear on this. The final product is from God. The Spirit shaped the language of the biblical writers to say exactly what he wanted said right down to the very letters of every word, every jot and tittle. 19th and early 20th century theologian B.B. Warfield, I think, precisely articulate what biblical inspiration entails when he writes this, The Bible is the word of God in such a sense that its words, though written by men and bearing indelibly impressed upon them the marks of their human origin, were written, nevertheless, under such an influence of the Holy Ghost as to be also the words of God, the adequate expression of his mind and will. Now you'll note in there that Warfield gives four essential elements to the inspiration of Scripture. 
First, he's noting that inspiration was accomplished by God, the Holy Spirit. Of course, in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, which literally means God breathed. And if it is breath from God, God's word is inseparably connected to God himself. The Bible and God cannot be separated. Second, inspiration included human participation. Again, these biblical writers were, were cognizant of what was going on. They were consciously aware and involved in the process. And so their personalities, their vocabularies, their styles, their experiences, their circumstances, all these things are reflected in their writings. And yet, ultimately, we must realize the words of Scripture are the exact words that God wanted because three, inspiration was ultimately controlled by God. And therefore, we have to conclude that inspiration demands perfection, lest the Holy Spirit is accused of controlling an imperfect process. In other words, inspiration logically leads to and ensures biblical inerrancy. All of these realities point to this one overriding truth. The Bible is God's word. Therefore, we've got to approach it as God's specific message to us. He speaks directly to us through it so that we will obey it. Now, because the Bible is God's communication to mankind, because it is communication to us so that we will come to Christ, that we'll grow in godliness, Satan, of course, has always opposed the word of God. He has always tried to destroy it from the very beginning. As he said to Eve, the devil has sought to cast doubt upon the word of God by asking, indeed, has God really said? And since that point, the evil one has constantly, ceaselessly attacked God's word through false teachers. False teachers who have denied the true teachings of God's word to, to keep unbelievers in darkness and to lead professing Christians astray. And yet, in spite of all of these attacks, God's word endures forever. The, the, word grow, the, the world grows darker and darker, but God's word shines brighter and brighter. And if we build our lives upon it, it will encourage us to expect Christ's coming, to live obedient lives in light of it, and therefore not be led astray by false teachers. So, brethren, as our, our text urges us, you must put your trust in God's sure word. You must read it, study it, meditate upon it, correctly interpret it, put yourself under the right teaching of it. You must pay careful attention to it, that is, obey it, so its light will help you to avoid all the pitfalls of this dark and dirty world. And if you do these things, Peter says, then you will rejoice when the day of the Lord dawns and Christ, the morning star, rises and fully shines into your heart. Amen. Let's bow for prayer.